My hopes are through the story of my family and my story that no matter what challenges you guys might face, that you will live by those three words that I live by and my family has for over 200 years, which are never give up. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. Thank you very much. I have to say I'm glad I'm not in the golf business because I don't have much competition. It's a hard act to follow for sure. Um, this morning I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit about the history of my family uh, and about perseverance. My hopes are through the story of my family and my story that no matter what challenges you guys might face that you will live by those three words that I live by and my family has for over 200 years which are never give up. We actually started performing back in the 1780s, so for eight generations now. And as I said, over 200 years, we've entertained audiences across the globe. In fact, uh, my family's done everything in the circus world you can imagine, from training wolves to flying trapeze, every, every broad uh, part of the spectrum. Um, you know, my, uh, my great-grandfather is really the one who made the name famous. He was born in 1907 over in Magdeburg, Germany. The family originated in Bohemia, eventually making the way while touring to Germany. And um, he was born in 1907, and by the age of 13, he had learned to do handstands, and he was actually supporting his family, his mom and his brother and his sister, by sneaking into beer gardens. He would actually go in late at night, and he would put a chair on top of a table and do handstands on that chair and pass the hat. And he supported his family for many years like that. But he loved the circus world and, of course, his legacy and uh, eventually, he was reading a trade magazine, and it, it was a circus trade magazine, of all things, which still exists to this day, believe it or not. And there was a, a wanted ad, and it was looking for a gentleman who, could, who had great balance, was a great hand balancer, but wasn't scared of heights. And uh, my great-grandfather answered that ad uh, and was sent for by a gentleman by the name of Luis Weitzman. And Luis sent for him and brought him over. Uh, to perform with him, and my great-grandfather's first trick that he did on the wire has never been duplicated, believe it or not. The first trick that he did, he would actually follow Luis Weitzman out to the middle of the wire by holding onto his shoulders. Luis would actually kneel down and do a headstand on the wire, and my great-grandfather would do a handstand on his feet about 80 feet above the ground without any safety devices. Um, a crazy feat in my mind, and I've, I've done quite a few things if you guys don't know. That's nuts. Uh, to trust him that much, for one, and just the ability to do that is, uh, is pretty amazing. Uh, so he worked with Luis Weitzman, and that was the first time, really, that my family had started walking on wires. That's really where Highwire got introduced to the family. And eventually, my great-grandfather left Luis Weitzman. He created his own troupe and toured all over Europe. In 1927, they landed in Havana, Cuba, and uh, they were getting ready to perform. It was about halfway through their season, and... Um, the show owner came up, they were getting warmed up, getting ready to perform, and the producer came up and said, you guys can have the night off. My great-grandfather looked at him and said, why in the world would you give us the night off? We have a full packed house, we're in costume, we're ready to go. No, you guys are doing a great job, you have the night off. Well, what my great-grandfather didn't realize was that John Ringling was in the audience, he'd made his way over from America, and he'd heard about this amazing wire troupe that he had to bring to the States. And that business owner was an astute, smart businessman, and he said, you know what, I don't want John Ringling to see the Walendas, because I know if he does, he's going to sign him, and I'm going to lose him to Ringling Brothers. 
Well, John Ringling was also a smart, astute businessman, and he snuck into the tent the next evening and saw my family perform, and he brought him over to the United States to perform. Uh, he signed them that evening, and in 1928, March of 1928, they made their way to the United States, and they performed uh, their opening night. It was in Madison Square Gardens in New York City. It was a filled-to-capacity arena, and my family made their way up onto the wire, and they did all these amazing feats like you're seeing here in these photos. And when they finished performing, they made their way to the ground, and they made their final bows. And the audience went crazy. They were whistling, screaming, foot stomping, just going nuts. And my family ran back to their dressing room in fear. Because in those days, whistling and foot stomping was the same as being booed off the stage in Europe. So they thought for sure they were going to be fired on the spot. But uh, there was a bang on their dressing room door, and it was Ringmaster who made them come back to the arena floor where they received an unprecedented 15-minute standing ovation for their first performance here in the United States. They instantly became a sensation. Uh, their names were plastered over the posters all across the United States as they headlined with Ringling Brothers. And they performed there for about 17 years. Eventually, my great-grandfather said, it's time to go on our own. And in 1947, he created probably the trick on the wire that made our family the most famous for many reasons. Not just because it was a nearly impossible feat to accomplish, but also because of the tragedies that were involved with it. It was the seven-person pyramid on the wire, where seven people would stack up on the wire, four on the base, as you can see in that photo, two above them, and then a woman on the top uh, standing on a chair, as you see in that photo. They performed that feat for many years, about 15 years, and in 1962 they were performing it in Detroit, Michigan. And as they made their way out on the wire, the front man began to stumble and lost his balance. And that evening we lost two family members and my uncle was paralyzed from the waist down. My great-grandfather was sent to the hospital. He had several injuries and uh, the doctors didn't want to release him. But living by those words, the show must go on and never give up, he actually snuck out of the hospital the next evening and performed on the wire the same wire that the family had fallen on where he'd lost a nephew, a son-in-law, and where his son was paralyzed from the waist down. But my great-grandfather was just that inspiration, and he's that inspiration to me. He just wasn't willing to give up no matter what. He went on to do many amazing feats. They didn't do the seven-person pyramid after that. He went on and did many, many feats, including walking over Vet Stadium in Philadelphia. Uh, he walked over many football games. Uh, many baseball games. He toured uh, all over the country. Eventually, he did his greatest walk of his career, which is in uh, Tallulah Gorge, and it was in Georgia, where he walked uh, across the gorge. He was over 700 feet up and about 1,000 feet across, and during that walk, he was 67 years old, and he did two headstands as he made his way across that wire at 67 years old. Again, uh, the true inspiration of never giving up. Again, continuing to perform until he was 72. He was performing in San Juan, Puerto Rico. They had a circus there. He was performing our family's wire act there. And as he was performing, uh, the show tickets just weren't selling. And uh, he said to the show producer, you know what, why don't I go out and do something to promote the show? Let me do a walk between a couple skyscrapers in downtown San Juan. And uh, he did. He ended up putting a cable up or having his guys put a cable up and he did a walk, and about halfway out on that walk, uh, there were gusts of wind, the cable was rigged improperly, 
and he did what all of us have been trained to do, which is go down and grab that wire and hold on. He was 73 years old. He didn't have the strength. We've actually done studies, um, and we found that uh, through geriatrics doctors that your heart can't handle the amount of adrenaline that it takes to do what we do at that age. And the amount of adrenaline that went through him actually made him weak, and he wasn't able to hold on, and he fell and lost his life in 1978, walking between those skyscrapers in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I was born in 1979, and that was the legacy that I had inherited. I actually, people often ask, how old were you when you started walking the wire? Well, my mom was six months pregnant with me and still walking the wire. So technically, I've walked a wire longer than I've even been alive. Uh, I actually started, though, about 18 months old, my mom would grab my hand and she would help me walk. As you can see in this photo, that's outside of a circus tent, and I'm walking on a strap there. Uh, but it was just something that was fun. It was what we did as a family. It's the only thing that I knew, really. Uh, my mom would grab my hand and, and help me walk back and forth. I would watch my parents practice, and I saw how much passion and joy they had from doing what they did that I wanted to be a part of it. And for us, that was our playground in our backyard was a wire. And even my friends, who I've broken world records with, that I grew up with, uh, that just came over and played in my backyard with me, um, would play on those, on those playground apparatuses, or what we consider a playground. Um, but it wasn't until I was about, I had performed many, many things. I actually started performing at two years old as a clown. We were in SeaWorld in San Diego. I would come out dressed as a clown. That's a picture of me and my sister. And then on the, uh, on the right side is a picture of my dad, mom, and me and my sister. But as a clown, I would actually come out in a pillowcase, uh, and the clowns would carry me out. They'd dump me into the middle of the circus ring, and I would perform with them. Um, and eventually, I learned how to do... Uh, all different circus things, from juggling to, of course, riding a unicycle. That's me at about nine years old in a wheel, about 35 feet up. Um, also uh, learned how to bareback ride, which is basically riding on the back of a horse, standing up, doing pyramids and such on the back of a horse. But wasn't able to walk the wire or was, didn't have permission for my parents to walk the wire until I was 13. I was uh, performing, they were performing in upstate New York. And um, they had invited me to be part of the act finally. I had to prove to them that I could handle it mentally and physically. You know, the challenges of what we do are not, not always just the physical challenge. It seems impossible to you guys, but really it's more the mental challenge. And, and they wanted to know that I was mentally capable of, of having enough experience as well as enough confidence. And they had to have enough confidence in me, which still goes to this day, uh, that I'd be able to walk that wire. Um, but as I grew up, uh, I had the same passion that my parents had. I loved performing. But I also, through those teenage years, learned the title of a starving artist. It was a struggle to make ends meet. Uh, the circus world was certainly changing. Um, there were struggles financially. And um, my mom, in fact, wrote a book. And it was called The Last of the Walendas. And uh, it wasn't titled that way by her, but really it was about the fact that there were so many struggles to make a living in our industry that, that we didn't know if it was even possible to do that anymore. Uh, so I decided, and through my parents' uh, persuasion, that I was going to go and graduate from high school and go off to college. I was going to go study. I wanted to become a pediatrician. I love children, love medicine, and I thought I'm going to give up this passion and go on and do something where I know I can pay my bills and successfully support my family. But I was 18 years old, uh, just about to graduate from high school, 
uh, already had applied to a couple colleges and visited several of them. And the phone rang. And it was my uncle. And he was calling. He talked to my father and my mom. And he said, you know, we've been invited to go back to Detroit, Michigan to recreate the seven-person pyramid for the first time since it fell back in 1962. And I want you guys to be a part of it. And I remember that phone call. I remember my dad hanging up and, and telling us about it. And, um, and I remember saying, you know, I want to be a part of that. But it was going to take me putting off college for the first semester if I was going to do so. And I remember the struggles of making that decision. Do I want to continue performing? Well, I knew in my heart I wanted to perform, but should I put off college or should I just focus on my future and my career? And uh, after a lot of conversations, I decided that I wanted to be a part of that, that pyramid. I wanted to go show the world that our family doesn't give up. We continue on. Even though there was a tragic accident in 62, we can still go on and do this. And then I was going to go on and, and go off to college. Um, so we trained for about six months for that pyramid um, rigorously. Obviously, we were going back to the same arena, working on the same equipment that they'd fallen on in the same area. Sort of a surreal experience. And I remember going back to Detroit and getting there and, uh, and looking across uh, that arena and seeing TV cameras, what seemed like at that age for miles. I mean, it was everybody you could imagine was there from Entertainment Tonight to Hard Copy to, um, to Larry King, you name it. They were all there to interview us. And I thought, you know, I don't know that our industry is dying. I think it's changing. And if we can use the TV element to promote what we do and rebuild this brand, I believe we could be very successful at it. And that was a, a, a pivotal point in my life. That was when I decided that I was going to carry on this legacy, that I was going to continue on what my family had started over 200 years back. But I was going to do it more in the lines of what my great-grandfather did. And I was going to use a different platform, which was now the TV world was a huge platform. So uh, we had done this pyramid, the seven-person pyramid, and I thought, you know, we made headlines around the world. This should help our brand. Let me go out and uh, with my, alongside of my parents and try to start booking ourselves around the country. And uh, I went back to Sarasota. And um, meanwhile, through this time, from 15 on, during this, these years of, of traveling on and off with my parents, uh, just because the work wasn't really there. During the summers, for the most part, we were traveling. I, I'd taken a job at First Watch in downtown Sarasota. And I started as a busboy and kind of worked my way up the chain. I was a busboy, then eventually I waited tables, eventually becoming the kitchen manager. And um, all the way up through, uh, through going to Detroit, went to Detroit, came back, and ended up taking a position as the general manager of First Watch Downtown. So I have a history in the restaurant business uh, as well. And so I was, I was 21. Um, I was the general manager, still wanting to pursue performing. And I decided that through the money that I made as a manager at First Watch, I would save up and I would build promotional material. Because, again, I had this passion of going on and performing. I mean, that was the vision. That was the dream. And I wasn't going to turn around at that point. I'd made that decision at 18. So we made this promotional material, sent it out, and eventually I got a call from an agent in Japan. And he said, we want you to come to Japan to perform for about six weeks. And I remember talking to him and being very excited and saying, hey, you know, we'll come over, we'll do the seven-person pyramid, and we'll break the world record, and we'll do an eight-person pyramid. And I remember hanging up the phone and telling my dad about the call, being extremely excited. And my dad said, what are you thinking? You offered to do not only the seven-person pyramid, but you offered to do the eight-person pyramid. And I was like, Dad, we've got to take these opportunities. This is an incredible opportunity. 
Uh, it's a huge market in Japan. If we can do the eight-person pyramid, it'll make headlines around the world and it'll help build our brand and we'll be able to do what we love. So after several months, six months again of training, all the while I was working at First Watch and in the evenings, luckily First Watch closes at 2.30, so I was home by four, and I was able to practice and train for that eight-person pyramid. Um, so we went to Japan and after about two weeks, we were able to, um, to perform the eight-person pyramid. As you see it there, that's me in the back on the bottom. Um, the second person is a friend, of, uh, a friend of mine. The third is my best friend, who I grew up with in my backyard. The, the very front person, I'm sorry, I'm going right to left. The very front person is another very close friend of mine that I grew up with, uh, who went to Sarasota High School and Sailor Circus, which is a circus school in Sarasota. Um, on the second level in the back is my brother-in-law, Second level in the front is my sister. The third level is my mom. And get this, the fourth level is my father-in-law. So my mom was holding my father-in-law, but pretty much all family. So we went over, we, we broke this world record, and we thought, I thought at least, this is great. We made headlines. We were in the Guinness Book of World Records. This is incredible for our brand. This is the launching point we need. And I went back to Sarasota, we flew back, sent out more promotional material showing the eight-person pyramid, and I sat in Sarasota for about six more years. Off and on, occasionally I'd go out and perform, but nothing that was substantial enough to support my family. Still working at First Watch. Went back, luckily I was a hard worker. I truly believe in, um, in giving it your, your 100%, giving it your all, no matter what you're doing in life. And they took me back immediately. Uh, and eventually, in 2007, we got a phone call. 2006, we got a phone call, me and my wife, and it was uh, from Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus. And they invited me and my wife. My wife comes from eight generations of circus on one side, seven on the other. Um, we have, our kids have 23 generations of circus blood in them. Um, so, uh, but she comes from a long history. Her family is the first to do the quadruple somersault on the flying trapeze on her father's side. And that is her father on the top of that picture. And then on her mom's side, uh, they were brought over by Ringling Brothers in 1947. They do what's called Risley, where they juggle each other on their feet. And uh, so we were invited to go on Ringling Brothers and headline with them. We were going to perform on uh, what, an apparatus called the Wheel of Steel. And also, my wife was performing sway poles on that show. So that's a picture of me. We closed the show. Me and a very close friend of mine named Bello Knock. Some of you may be aware of who he is. He's actually on America's Got Talent competing right now. Um, but we, have, uh, we sort of grew up together, so we headlined together. And in the second year of that tour, I was called by one of the promoters in Newark, New Jersey. And they said, we're opening up a brand new arena. Ringling Brothers has never played here before. And we want to do something big and exciting. And they said, we want to uh, promote this new arena. Do you have any ideas? And I said, absolutely. I've had a dream. I've wanted to, to break a world record riding on a bicycle on a wire uh, for the highest and the longest distance ever ridden on a bicycle on a wire. They loved the idea. And... Uh, they said, well, let's see if we can get some TV coverage. Well, meanwhile, I had connected with a couple gentlemen uh, in New York City who manage artists. And uh, through that connection, uh, we became very close friends. Eventually, I uh, was the first, really the first person in our industry to have a management team. Generally, in our industry, you just book through different producers and different agents. Um, but through those managers, they were able to secure a spot on the Today Show. Uh, that was going to air me riding on that bicycle over Newark, New Jersey. 
And I thought, you know, this is an incredible opportunity. I've got a captive audience of about 7 million people who watch the Today Show every morning. So I need to do something to show the world that the circus world is changing with the times. I think that's one of the struggles that our world has faced and continues to to this day is that our industry hasn't advanced. They still do the same thing. They still wear rhinestones. They still wear sequins. They're non-relatable. Um, and again, no offense to them because that is who I am, but I felt like we needed to change who we are. So I decided I was going to wear, basically wear jeans and a t-shirt to do this walk. And I also thought I would take the opportunity to do something unique to try to connect to the younger generation. And uh, here's a video of what I did. So this is over the streets of Newark, New Jersey. Oh my God, you're not going to believe this. He's pulling out a cell phone. Okay, let's see if we can follow what's going on. He seems awfully comfortable. He is, uh, Harry, he's actually calling our control room. <laughs> now, why, now, why did he want to do this? Okay, well, let's... Oh, gosh. Hey, Nick, hey, Nick? Nick can you hear us? Yep, I can. Why are you calling us, Nick? <laughs> Don't you have something better to do? Hey, for you. Where are you? Uh, Want to remind the viewers this is Nick's to get idea. On my shoulders to ride back on the ah, No, that's not going to happen. Can no. you tell us how? So this is the second part of that journey where I broke the world record for riding a bicycle 135 feet above the street with no safety devices and for a distance of about 250 feet across. People ask me what was the scariest moment in your career and up until recently that was it right there. Three quarters of the way up that cable, I was up on an uphill incline, the back wheel began to slip on that wire and I wasn't able to gain traction. Um, I'm always in constant communication with my father when I do these walks. I've got a headset on and a microphone as does he. And I remember my dad saying, Nick, you just need to, you need to stand still, don't back up. And I remember telling him, Dad, I have to back up. And uh, eventually, after about a minute of talking to him, I just ended up backing up a couple feet and was able to gain traction and make it into the other side. Um, and that was right there. That is my children, who are a lot bigger now. Um, and uh, that's Carrie Sanders, who's a great friend from NBC, who I, I'm with regularly now. Uh, but that was my first personal world record. After breaking that world record in Japan, I got off that cable, and I announced at that point, Carrie said, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, Carrie, I want to be the first person in the world to walk a wire directly over the Grand Canyon. And uh, I used that platform to promote that, knowing, again, that I had seven or eight million people watching me live, that somebody had to be watching from these networks that'd be interested in seeing somebody walk a wire over the Grand Canyon. So within weeks, my managers had, had calls from across the globe from all the TV networks saying, we want to meet with Nick Walenda. We'd love to see him walk across the Grand Canyon on our network. Eventually, within about two and a half months, we signed a contract with NBC where I was going to be the first person in the world to walk across the Grand Canyon. It was going to be live. It was going to be a TV special. It was not only aired here, but on other networks across the globe. And um, I was excited. I remember this was a huge opportunity. It was a launching point that I needed for my career. And um, no one in, in the history of our industry had ever had a two-hour live TV special. So I told everybody and their brother about it because clearly I was excited. We had ordered the cable. It was already paid for. We had deposits from NBC. 
And about a month and a half before that walk, we had air dates, commercial was already shot. I got a call from my managers. And they had just received a phone call from the new head of specials at NBC. And he said, unfortunately, I'm the new guy here and I am canceling anything that was on the slate that was set to air. I remember getting that phone call and um, literally sitting there in tears, like this was, this was what we needed. This is what our family needed as a launching point. And feeling like giving up, felt like there was no hope. I mean, again, every person in the world that I told thought I was a liar at that point. They were, you were making it up, it wasn't real. And uh, I remember looking back again to my family and the words that my great-grandfather lived by, never give up. So about two weeks after that, and, and really struggled with depression through those, those couple weeks, I said, you know what, get back up, keep going like your great-grandfather would have, like your family would have, make them proud. And uh, I remember calling my managers and saying, you know, we need to do something, we, we've got to continue on and continue to pursue this brand. And uh, through a lot of discussions, reality TV was a huge thing at that time, and uh, they said, you know, why don't we start pitching a reality TV series? Uh, so we did. We ended up coming up with a concept, which was basically the science and the engineering behind what we do, as well as the stunts that we do. We went and pitched all over, uh, all over at all the networks, and eventually I signed a deal with the Discovery Channel for a six-part TV series that was going to be called Life on a Wire. And again, it was just following me and my family as we did these amazing stunts. Um, throughout that series, we filmed those six episodes. Uh, this is one shot. This is Santa Cruz. And I tried to do things that were unique. Again, things that hadn't been done. So I decided I was going to walk on the outside of a Ferris wheel. And I'll never forget this day. Um, that was during a rehearsal. I rehearsed the day before. It had never been done before. And I got up there, and that top railing was shaking like crazy. And I talked to you earlier about my family being confident in what I do and having confidence in me. Well, I got down from there, and I walked up to my wife, and she was white, white as a ghost, and she'd bitten off all of her, all of her fingernails. And she said, I've never been so scared in my life at seeing you do something. And mind you, again, she comes from a history of this, so she understands what I do. People ask, do you sleep the night before an event? For the Grand Canyon, I slept till 10.30 a.m. that morning. I sleep fine. I sleep like a baby before the event. This is what I do. This is my life. This is my passion. That was the only night I didn't sleep before an event because my wife didn't have confidence. I knew I could do it. I did it. I practiced. I trained. I was confident. But because she, I didn't have her confidence in me, I couldn't sleep through the night. But through this series, we filmed all sorts of uh, different cool, of, cool feats. Um, the next one is a video, I believe, that we're going to show of uh, me doing something that was inspired by my grandmother. I was actually in my grandmother's living room, and I was looking at a picture on her wall, actually in her kitchen. It was a picture of her hanging by her teeth under a bicycle on a high wire. And I thought, how do I bring this to a new generation? And I said, well, it would be pretty cool to hang by your teeth under a helicopter. So uh, we went to Branson, Missouri with the film crew. Uh, we did a bunch of science, a bunch of training. I brought on a, an amazing dentist who's a very dear friend of mine who made a, a really cool mouth guard. And, uh, and then here's the video. Or here's a photo. Uh, so I hung by a helicopter. It was another world record for me. Um, I was about 280 feet above the ground when I did this. Hung by my teeth for about 30 seconds, and I actually hung by my toes at, at one point. Um, and just recently, I don't know if you guys... 
uh, have se has seen this, but my wife broke that world record of mine where she hung by her teeth about 350 feet above Niagara Falls. This was done about a month ago. Uh, it was shown on uh, the Today Show as well. Um, so there's a little competition between me and her, that's for sure. And don't worry, I'll, I'll break her world record soon. Um, so, so I went on to do many different things, broke four Guinness World Records during filming that series. I also uh, performed on the Wheel of Death. We actually went to Atlantic City. I hung it over the edge of the boardwalk. I was about 250 feet up. I walked on the outside of that in about 40 mile an hour winds, completely blindfolded. Um, and, and also did many, many other cool, cool events um, for, that, for that series. So we filmed the series. About three months later, it takes a while for them to edit and cut. Uh, I got flown to New York City, and I was on the Today Show. As you can see, I have an incredible relationship with them. And uh, I announced my TV series, that it was going to be airing that evening on the Discovery Channel. I was extremely excited. It would be huge for the brand. And uh, that evening, that series aired. Meanwhile, while they were editing that series, the president of Discovery got fired, and they brought in a new president. You can't make this stuff up. So they, they aired one episode. My manager got a phone call saying, you know, we appreciate you guys. We thank you for your relationship, but we're pulling all the other specials off the air. The TV world is a very dog-eat-dog -dog world, to say the least. And if they're not going to get credit for it personally, the president say, get it off my slate. It's not going to help me whether it's good or bad. In fact, if it's good, it doesn't help me at all. So I'd rather just get it off the air. Again, talk about the wind getting taken out of your sails, getting knocked back down again. I told everybody and their brother about this series, and it was going to be incredible. And uh, it got pulled off the air. So again, struggling, what do we do? What do I do? You know, most people, I think, would have given up by then and said, you know what, forget it. I'll go back to school now. I need to do something totally different. But I said, you know what, let's, let's continue to pursue. Let's see if we can get permission. I, I met with my managers. I said, let's see if we can get permission to walk across Niagara Falls. The story of Niagara Falls is that it, it took changing two laws. There's a law in the United States that said there's no stunting that's over 100 years old and one in Canada as well. And I knew it was going to be a tremendous challenge to get permission to do that walk. As we know, uh, with politics, it's nearly impossible to get anything done in our country, let alone get permission for a guy to walk across Niagara Falls on a wire. So I went out campaigning. I went out and met with, with a state senator in New York and said, hey, you know what? This is a dream of mine. I'd love to do this. His name was Senator Maziarz. I'll never forget the meeting. I walked in about 25 minutes later. He said, you know, you know what, son? It's an incredible idea, but it's never going to happen. Sorry. And uh, so I went back to Florida, flew back home, and I thought, you know, how in the world am I going to convince the government to allow me to do this? There's got to be a way. And I thought, you know, if this is aired live on national TV or worldwide TV, better yet, it's going to be an incredible promotion to this region. And um, I knew I had to get permission from one side before the other, so I went to the U.S. because that's obviously where I'm from. And um, I said, you know what, why don't we do an economical impact study to show what it would bring in if I were to do this. If you know uh, Niagara Falls, the U.S. side really struggles. It's nowhere near what it's like in Canada. Canada is an amazing, it's like going to Disney World when you go over there. The U.S. side is not so much. It's, uh, it's embarrassing in, in reality, in my opinion. So um, I went to uh, the senator again and I said, here, we've done an economical impact study. We use the company that the government uses to do theirs, uh, their economic impact studies, and I want you to look at it. 
And it showed that it, with a legacy effect, which means over the next five years, if it was aired on national TV, the amount of people that see it, that buy tickets, that go there, um, it would bring in about $120 million to that region. And all of a sudden, I had the government's ear because they knew this would be great for them. So within about two and a half months of more campaigning, speaking in front of the House, the Senate, eventually that law was written into effect that gave Nick Walenda a one-time exemption to a 100-year-old law on the U.S. side. It was signed by Governor Cuomo, and I had permission on the U.S. side. So that was half the battle. I still had to go to the Canadian side and get permission from them. At this point, we had a me huge media following because it had taken about a year. The media obviously follows any government emails, and they took a liking to this story. So uh, I went to the Canadian side, and I'll never forget the Canadian. I had to speak to a commission over there that oversees the parks. There's 12 on the board. And uh, I, there was about, it was open to the public. There were about uh, probably 300 people there and about 25 media cameras. And uh, I went to, um, went to that meeting prepared to speak for 10 minutes. That's all they were going to allow. I spoke about nine minutes and 30 seconds. The president of the board said, commission said, hey, you got 30 seconds left. Wrap it up. They were strict. So I finished uh, telling why I wanted to do it, showing that economic impact study. They voted on the spot and unanimously said, we will not give you permission to walk across Niagara Falls. Um, there's no way to walk halfway and back, unfortunately. So I didn't know what to do. Um, I'll never forget um, making more phone calls and eventually talking to the president of that commission who said, over my dead body will you walk across Niagara Falls. That was her words to me. Um, but I continued to seek permission. I went higher up in the government eventually meeting with a bunch of government officials, the Minister of Tourism in Queen's Park, Toronto, and uh, got him really excited about it. And he said, you know what, give me about a month or two and then schedule another meeting. So about a month and a half went by, they scheduled a meeting. Uh, a week before the meeting, I get a phone call that the president of the Parks Commission on the Canadian side resigned. So she's Thank God, because I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone. She didn't have to die for me to walk over Niagara Falls, but she had to resign for me to walk across Niagara Falls. Uh, and she did so. The next meeting, I was unanimously approved to be the first person in the world that would ever walk a wire directly over Niagara Falls. And here's a video. It has all been prolonged to this. The time has arrived. Nick Walenda set to walk into history. experience that the hardest part of the walk is often that very first step that you have to This, he has repeatedly said, is the most difficult part of the walk. Walking downhill with the weight and again with the tether. Oh my gosh, it's an unbelievable view. You know, I am, I am so blessed to be in the position I am to be the first person in the world to be right here, and the only person in the world that will ever be right here. This is truly breathtaking. Brother, it means so much to me to have a piece of, of, of my family alongside with me. You know, family is important to me. My beautiful wife, my three beautiful children. To have a family that supports me, even when I have crazy ideas.
focus on that other side. special was seen live by 13 million people. Thank you. <laughs> seen live by 13 million people and since then has brought in, uh, with a legacy effect, well over $150 million to that region. So it was a huge success and I have an incredible relationship with the government in New York, obviously now, um, which has opened a lot of other doors as well. Um, if you noticed on that walk, I was wearing a tether. A lot of people ask, why were you wearing a tether? That's not what your family's done for, for generations. Well, about two weeks prior to that walk, I was doing a promotional walk to promote that TV show in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and as I was walking up, it was shown live on Good Morning America, which is obviously an ABC network uh, morning show. And about three quarters of the way up that cable, I was walking. I, I'd done a lot of walks that my great-grandfather has done, recreated them, but I always try to put a unique twist and make them my own. Well, he had walked over the Inner Harbor years before, many years before, and I thought it would be cool to walk from the ground on the Inner Harbor up into the harbor with a crane on top of a barge. So there was movement on the cable. Um, the barge was moving. And uh, as I made that walk, I had one of my best friends up in a basket on the crane ready to receive the balancing pole once I get up there. And I was about probably 50 feet from him, and I said, do you want to see 35,000 people scream? And he said, yeah. So uh, he knew what I was going to do. I was going to be a showman. I did a slip, acted like I was going to fall, and um, 35,001 people screamed. That one was the president of ABC. And uh, she said, I remember getting off the wire, and within minutes, we had a text my manager did in all caps that said, what was that? And uh, we got on a phone call with her and their attorneys and their team, and uh, she said, you know, I don't think we can air this on ABC. Again, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, through a series of negotiations, the only way that they would air that is if I were to wear a safety. Um, I'd never worn a safety before in my life. My engineers had to design that within 
really at that point, it was only about a week away. I had finished all of my training and preparation for Niagara Falls, and uh, I had to walk with this tether. So we had to redesign the entire uh, stabilization system and, of course, that safety. Um, if there was anything I was nervous about during that walk, it was that safety. And it was because I was worried it would get tangled up and cause me to fall, and then how was I supposed to get back up on the wire? When I originally was told I had to wear a safety, I thought, of course I'll wear a safety, no problem, wink, wink. I'll wear it, I'll get 20 feet out, I'll take it off, what are you gonna do about it? Um, and then I remembered that my family is a family that lives by integrity as well, and if you give your word, you gotta keep your word. And it was more of a pride thing for me to take it off than anything. I also thought that nobody would wanna watch if you're wearing a tether, what's the fun in it? Well, the reality is it was a hugely successful TV show, again, 13 million. It was the highest rated show in the last 10 years on any network, a live special. Um, so very, very successful. When I got off the cable there, I said, all right, now I wanna be the first person in the world to walk across the Grand Canyon. And the next morning, our phones were ringing off the hook and uh, my favorite phone call was the president of the Discovery Channel who told me that she was gonna pull my series off the air. And she literally told my managers, I've been directed by the founder of the Discovery Channel to do whatever it takes to get Nick Willenda back on our network. Uh, now I had a negotiating tool, um, which helped both financially, of course, um, as well as the fact that I knew I could negotiate my way out of that tether. Um, so we did, we negotiated with several networks, including ABC, we gave them the first right because they were the ones that first put me on the air for a live TV special and they said we can't air anything unless you wear a tether. So we ended up signing with the Discovery Channel uh, and that's when I did a walk and became the first person in the world to walk a wire over the Grand Canyon. Video. We are coming to you live from perhaps the greatest natural wonder in the world, the Grand Canyon. That is Nick Melinda. How loose is he right now? He's playing with his nephew, Gavin, inside his trailer just minutes before he attempts to cross the Grand Canyon. Ooh, that's a view there, buddy. God. I don't want to talk to anyone, Dad. Okay. Gotcha. Crazy, Lord. Things are way worse than I expected. Nick is now at the halfway point of this walk. It was way more, way more windy and the movement of the cable and it took every bit of me to stay focused that entire time. And this was a lifelong dream for him, a dream realized now as he looks out at what he just did, which was to cross the Grand Canyon. 
as you can see from that video, faith plays a key role uh, in what we do as well. Um, 21 million people watched that live. It was shown around the world. That was in the U.S. alone, 21 million. Highest rated TV show in the history of the largest network in the world. Um, now I have an incredible relationship with the president of Discovery. Um, you know, I, I tell you these stories, again, in hopes to inspire you guys that, um, that nothing's impossible if you set your mind to it and if you're willing to live by those words, never give up. We faced a lot of challenges. In fact, the greatest challenge in my career came in February of this year. We were uh, training to break the world record that we'd set in Japan at 20 feet above the ground for the eight-person pyramid. We trained for about six months. We were going to do it at 28 feet above the ground uh, for my hometown crowd. And we were rehearsing for that show. It was uh, opening night was two nights away. And uh, as we walked out on the wire in that pyramid formation, uh, we began to stumble and lost our balance. Uh, four of our members, actually five of our members, hit the ground from 28 feet. No safety. By the grace of God, I caught the wire to uh, my cousin, and another guy caught the wire and held on. One of the guys that fell landed on his feet and walked out of, out of that tent. We were at a big, in a big top. Walked out of the tent and called his mom and told, him what, told her what happened. Um, four of the other ones were injured pretty bad. Uh, my aunt, who had fallen from the top, she was at about 48 feet above the ground at the top of that pyramid, uh, broke her hip, broke her arm, and broke her leg. Um, one of the gentlemen broke his pelvis, and also uh, both of his feet were broke. One of the gentlemen was on his way down head first, and uh, in our industry, you're taught if you're in the ring spotting somebody um, that you don't catch them. You actually redirect their fall so that it redirects that motion, that force. Instead of coming down, it goes sideways. Hit him like a linebacker. Um, and that's what saved his life. He, he only broke two toes, miraculously, from falling from about 35 feet. Um, my sister fell and uh, was injured very bad as well. Uh, she broke every bone in her face. She broke her arm and broke her leg. But by the grace of God, everybody survived. There was no spinal cord damage. Everybody uh, has, for the most part, fully recovered. My sister still has a few more surgeries, but they're minor. Um, nothing major. Some of it's cosmetic related. Uh, but by the grace of God, everybody survived. It's made me th rethink everything that I've done throughout my career. Um, certainly the most humbling experience of my life. Um, I had to make a decision that night. Do I go back on the wire? I was supposed to do a big event in Tampa at Amelie Arena, where I was going to walk over the, over the top of the arena um, for another corporation. And uh, I remember going to those hospital rooms and speaking to everybody that was in the hospital and saying, what do you want me to do? I'm, I'm willing to put down the balancing pole and never walk the wire again. And um, everyone, every one of them said, we want you to get back on the wire. So I went back to the waiting room where the rest of the performers were that were involved in the accident. I said, what do you guys want to do? And they said, we need to do what your family would do. You live by the words, never give up. You need to get back on the wire. People ask what the hardest walk of my career was. It wasn't Niagara Falls. It wasn't 43 mile an hour winds 
over the Grand Canyon, 53 mile an hour winds over the Grand Canyon. It was that walk I had to do the next day at Amelie Arena. And reliving that over and over again, that accident. But again, I continue to look back to my family for inspiration. You know, those words, never give up, the show must go on. Since then, again, everybody is pretty much fully recovered. I have, um, we have been able to recreate the seven-person pyramid since then already. Uh, we're getting ready to perform it again very soon. We performed it about a month ago in Connecticut. And uh, my hopes are that you guys will see me and my sister in October on the Discovery, I'm sorry, on the Today Show. And uh, she'll do the first walk that she's done since that accident, which she's, she's preparing for now. But again, um, life isn't always easy. But as long as we continue to focus on our dreams and our goals, no matter what challenges we face, whether it'll be mental, physical, relationships, uh, anything. And, and I believe that our family is proof, living proof, that anything is possible. If you can live by those words, never give up. Right now, I'm going to invite somebody up who's going to do sort of, I've done millions of interviews, literally, well, hundreds of thousands, maybe not millions, um, of interviews uh, around the globe. And uh, this gentleman, Dominic, is going to come up, and he's going to, uh, to ask me a few questions, and we might open it up for you guys to ask a few questions, too, if you'd like. Do we have a microphone? I have one here. They can give me one. need a lavalier. That's right. I'll stand here. Okay. How you doing? How about a round of applause? Uh, Nick, you just kind of talked about, uh, I mean, a bunch of different things during, uh, during your talk. Uh, what, what is the one walk, if you could pick one, that has meant the most to you? You know, I had the opportunity to uh, recreate the walk that took my great-grandfather's life in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, it was a dream of mine. Clearly, he is a huge inspiration to me and, and behind what I do and what my family's done. Um, so when I had that opportunity... Um, I didn't take it lightly. Actually, do you have video queued up? Here's a video of what, what we did. You know, people have heroes in their life, and if there's any hero that I could name, it would be Carl Valenda. It's extremely emotional for us, the fact that... that here, this, uh, the greatest firewalker to ever walk the face of the planet would lose his life in this location. And it is, it is a huge deal for me to be able to put this plaque here in remembrance of him. Mom, would you like to say something? It just makes me miss him more doing this. It's, it's wonderful to do this, but brings back a lot of the memories too. Good times that I had with him and all he taught me. I'll always remember your grandfather's the very best in his craft. He loved being on the wire, which was his life, and he was uh, an inspiration to me. I'll never forget him. You know, to carry on in his footsteps, and, and almost literally in his footsteps, it's been a goal of mine since, since I was a little kid. So that was uh, that was certainly my most favorite walk. Um, 
and most memorable that I've ever done. We have a, a very special guest, very special to me here today. Um, it is, uh, she is the biggest inspiration to me um, that, is, that is alive. Uh, she taught me everything I know. Uh, and she actually comes from your industry as well. Um, she comes from my industry, but this is what links our industries together. Uh, it's my mom. So mom, can you come up here? It's my mom, Delilah Walenda. So, um, obviously, she's the one who was in there in that video with me, um, and I thought it'd be cool to bring her up here. She actually is a manager at the Oaks Country Club, and um, again, she has, has certainly taught me everything I know and been a huge inspiration to me, and uh, I attribute my success. Um, I've been very blessed in life. I've gotten to a point where no one in our industry has ever been before. Um, blessed beyond my wildest dreams, further than I'd ever imagined. Ten world records, some of the highest rated TV shows in the history of major networks. And I attribute all of it to the prayer that my mom did at my bedside growing up. Um, so it's because of her that I am where I am today. So I want to give her a round of applause. Again, that's my boy. <laughs> so, um, would you like to ask sure. questions, Dominic? Uh, how do you deal with fear? I think that's a natural question to ask. Yeah, how do you deal with fear? Um, fear is a choice. I truly believe fear is a choice. Um, again, what we do is it takes a, a strong mind. But you can decide when you're going into a haunted house whether you're going to be scared or know that it's all fake and set up to scare you. That's the best way that I can explain it to you. You can be scared of the snake or know that... Uh, you can respect the snake because it's poisonous, but you don't have to be scared of it. Uh, that's the same way with the wire. We respect the wire deeply. We realize there's dangers, but we're not scared of it. We're not fearful. To be fearful is dangerous, uh, and that's when you'll get hurt. Uh, in terms of probably making your brand uh, more of a worldwide brand in today's day and age, um, how do you continue to do that and advance that? You know, it's, it's about continuing to think to the future. What's next? What can you do? What are other platforms? You know, I'm working on um, some stuff with Amazon right now. And uh, I'm working on a couple TV specials, one in Israel, uh, which is a place uh, that I find dear to my heart where I want to do a walk. Um, so I was just over there for a couple weeks working on a location. We are working on a, a location to walk over an active volcano, which has been a dream of mine. But again, it's always about raising the bar and, 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 and honestly getting that reaction. It's pretty simple. When you say I'm going to walk a wire over a volcano, people, people, people gasp naturally. That's how you build a brand. Uh, balance, life balance, work balance, uh, balance on the wire. Your book is, is titled Balance. How That's do you right. keep that yeah, in balance? Yeah, my, my book is... Um, is all about balance of life as much it is, as it is on the wire. I have three, three awesome children. In fact, my oldest is 19. He's serving our country as a U.S. Marine and uh, couldn't be more proud of him. But it is a challenge to balance out that um, between being a father, being a husband, 
being an entertainer, being a daredevil, being a businessman, wearing all of those hats. And that's one thing that I've tried to do is, is really uh, focus on my family first and let the rest come second. And I've been very blessed and very successful. I have a beautiful wife. We've been married for uh, almost 18 years now. And again, we have three beautiful children, um, one of which is going to be up here in a little while. When we let you guys walk this wire, he's going to be helping as well. But, um, but yeah, so it, it, is, it is certainly a challenge for all of us, right? I mean, especially you guys in the country club business. I'm sure you guys are working, if you're anything like my mom, 90 to 100 hours a week. Um, it's a lot of, there's a lot of dedication. There's a lot of time put in. So um, it is hard to, to balance all of that, especially traveling around the world. You know, it's not as though um, that I, I can come home every night. I'm traveling a lot, but I've done my best to limit my travel. Uh, in fact, when I do events like this, I often fly in and fly out immediately uh, to get back to my family. What type of preparation do you do? Preparation varies depending on the walk. For Niagara Falls and the Grand Canyon, I train on cables that were rigged lower to the ground, but same length, um, same tensions so that I can prepare. We'll bring in wind machines that will actually create wind gusts. We do studies that show what the wind's maximum speed will be or has been over the last couple of years in those areas. And then I also have, uh, during those walks, I have Jim Cantori's there generally for my walks and he is monitoring the weather. Even when he's not there, when my wife broke her world record a couple weeks ago, he was texting me because he couldn't be there saying, hey, watch out for this weather system because it was a, a bad weather day. And uh, he's always looking out for me no matter what. So it's, it helps to have good friends in the industry that are the best of the best. But really it's about training and preparing for the worst case so that when I'm walking Walking across Niagara Falls, in training I trained with 90 mile an hour winds for the Grand Canyon. Uh, so walking across Grand Canyon I got hit with 53 mile an hour winds. But when, when Jim tells my dad that, my dad tells me that because it's always a relay, my dad's the only one that talks directly to me generally, um, I can counter that where that fear would want to creep in. I can counter that with, well, yes, it's 53, but it's not 90, and you've walked in 90 and been successful. Um, it's important in life in anything that you do. I, I practice it regularly, whether it be in, in relationships or with uh, any struggles, that I don't let the negativity creep into my mind. As soon as it does, I counter it with something positive. Uh, negativity is like a weed growing in your garden. If you don't pull that negativity out immediately, you'll have a thousand weeds in your garden. So it's important that you get rid of that negativity immediately and counter it. Again, counter it with something positive. And it may come back double as strong. And it may come back triple as strong. But keep on getting rid of it. Don't let it grow in your mind because once it does, it can consume you and then take you over. And that's something I practice on the wire and in life in general. And there's, there's a lot of parallels between them for sure. Part of that preparation is, is getting the wire stabilized in these remote locations. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that process is, is fun and exciting. I'm, I'm involved in every step of the way from the engineering to the design uh, to the performance to the business end of things. I'm, I'm very, very hands-on with all of it, but I have an amazing uncle that has a 30-year uh, background in the military, which is where my son gets it from, gets his inspiration from, but he... Um, he was an engineer, an amazing engineer, eventually worked for Homeland Security, and he designs uh, most of my walks. He's the one in the far left. And then um, 
The far right is my best friend, uh, Joseph, who happens to be here. He travels with me a lot, uh, who's also an engineer, who does a lot of my engineering. Uh, my father is the next one over, second one in from the right. Um, and he also is very hands-on, obviously a lot more experienced than me, a lifetime of experience doing this. Very ingenuitive and creative when it comes to this stuff. Uh, and then another one of my best friends, uh, who's head of safety. Uh, he's actually a firefighter EMT at Sarasota County, but he travels and he's at every one of my events in case of any emergencies, etc. and also looking out for safety. You probably, as you're out on the wire, um Dealing with fear and staying calm and all those sort of things, uh, you're, and you mentioned it a while ago, you know, the grace of God, faith plays a large part in, in what you do. Um, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I said it. My mom, I remember waking up at five years old all the way up, and in the middle of the night, my mom would be kneeling at my bed praying for me. Um, faith is a huge thing in, in our lives. Um, I know I couldn't do what I do. I know I couldn't have been through the challenges. Yes, my family gives me inspiration, but I also know that there's a creator that's looking out for me too. Um, I'm very bold about my faith. You know, even my managers have said in the past, and they've changed since then, but, you know, don't talk about your faith so much on TV. I've never let that phase me. If, if that's going to get in the way, I'd rather know that there's a God looking out for me than finding favor in man because favor with God's way more important in my life. So I really um, choose to be bold about who I am and who my faith is. I don't, I'm not confrontational about it. I don't push it in your face, but I also don't hide it in any way. How do you measure success? Oh, man, by your children when they become adults, I think. <laughs> Uh, that's really what it comes, there's no greater responsibility in life, in my opinion, than raising children. Uh, that's it. So I think that's how you measure success, is, is how your children turn out. And it's, it's not always easy. I'd say the biggest challenges I've had in life are raising kids, not walking on a wire. But uh, it's the reality of, of life. And again, I believe that that is the measure of success. What would you like to add? Uh, I do want to say thank you to Jeff Hardigan, my best uh, general manager I've ever worked for. He's and she needs a raise. <laughs> and I'm happy to have my partner in crime here with me, the banquet manager, Morgan Miller. She's, she's awesome. <laughs> Just add, I know you're all club managers. But Jeff is really great. Uh, questions from the audience, is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Anybody have questions? Anybody have any questions? Yes, sir. Do you have any superstitions? Do I have any superstitions? I can just repeat them. I don't. I don't. Again, my faith plays a key role. So there's nothing, there's, you know, people say, what do you do before you get out on the wire? Um, I pray. I say a prayer with my family. That's all I do. It's not like I, you know, walk around in circles three times and, you know, it, it's, there's nothing other than prayer. And prayers, uh, you know, it's a matter of the mind. I'm talking to God. So it's different every time I pray. It's not like there's a ritualistic prayer even. She cooks a lot of special meals, but, yeah, but, but generally we're traveling and in a hotel, so. Um, my question is, uh, since your grandfather died on the wire, is there any time that you say, that would be it for me? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, you know, I, I believe probably, we'll, I, I know I'll stop by the time I'm 55, 
I'm going to stop doing a lot of performing probably within the next five years. Uh, me and my wife are opening a couple businesses locally in Sarasota. And um, there's a lot of stress in what we do. And it's not just on the performance side. Um, a lot of the stress that I deal with, which you guys can relate to, is managing people. You know, I'm not just managing um, a club. I'm managing people's lives, literally. I got a guy who goes out drinking and he's hungover in the morning. That's my life if he messes up. Uh, it's not as though, you know, the, the meals don't get cooked on time or the course doesn't open up on time. This is our lives. So it's tough. It's tough to manage and deal with personalities. So I feel for you guys. And I've been in that management role at a restaurant as well. But, man, it's a hundredfold when it comes to making a decision. It's on my chest of whether this guy's good enough to go up on the wire or not and, and support six or seven other lives. David? I yeah. just wanted to add that, you know, Nick's going to, retire, he says, from walking the wire, but that passion is still there. I worked with Nick uh, two and a half years ago, performing the seven-person pyramid, and that passion is still in my heart, so I'm not sure it's going to be that easy for him. Well, and, and two, part of our plan is to pass it on to the next generation. So me and my wife love children. Uh, we actually have a foundation where we, uh, we deal with children in children's hospitals and families, etc. But... Um, We'll still carry on and, and work with people, and we'll, we'll train. We're, we're developing a circus school, kind of a high-end uh, uh, elite circus school that will be based in Sarasota, where people will fly from all over the world to learn the walk of wire, et cetera. So we'll be, still be connected. I'll still travel around talking to people, telling people the stories, and doing some wire walking, but it just won't be on the scale. I'm getting ready to tour for the next four years, and I'll probably be home maybe a month a year. That's, that's a lot of travel. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of risk in your life, sometimes three times a day. Um, so that's kind of what I'm talking about, settling down a little bit on that end. Yeah, I, I guess you've uh, had, you know, walks over a long distance. You've had walks that dealt with a lot of elements of wind and rain and moisture from Niagara Falls. I thought the one in Chicago where you had the incline, to me, looked like the hardest one to accomplish. Yeah, so uh, my last TV special, my latest was in Chicago, Illinois, where I broke two world records. I walked up an inclined cable, as you can see there, kind of, it's in that picture, it's just, I look really small, I'm in that picture, believe it or not. But um, it was a, a, about a 30 degree incline, and it was cold, there was a blizzard the day before. Matter of fact, part of our engineering was we came up, my dad came up with a system to coat the cable so that ice couldn't stick to it, so I had grip on my feet. Um, that walk was challenging, but it was more challenging because immediately after that, I'd never done two back-to-back -back world records. Immediately after that, I had to go down, cross, back up, and I was going to walk between two skyscrapers 630 feet up blindfolded. I was so focused on that blindfold walk because that is an element that you don't want to take away when you're a wire walker. We use our focus for everything. The reason why I decided I wanted to walk a wire blindfolded was because I was getting LASIK surgery done, and as I was signing the paperwork, I was basically signing my vision away. If the doctor screwed up, there's nothing you can do about it. And I, it made me think, I wonder if I can do what I love and carry on my passion if I don't have my vision. So I started practicing in the backyard, two feet off the ground, just like this wire here that you guys are going to be able to try out if you want. But I started with my eyes closed and walking back and forth. Eventually, I put on a blindfold. Then I put speakers in my ears so there was no distractions. There was nothing to even listen to other than, than the music in my ears and walking. And then eventually got to the point where I'd do it higher, uh, where we brought in wind, etc. But I was so focused on that second walk that that walk blew. I mean, it went by like that. In fact, I almost ran up that cable because I was so nervous for the second one. What's going through your mind as you're walking across the table? 
Um, generally, what's for dinner? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, you know, I'm pretty focused on what I'm doing, focused on training. There are times, I mean, I walked over Pittsburgh and uh, over the Allegheny River in Pittsburgh. And I remember that walk, my kids were on the bridge. I was walking over the river. They were down on the bridge. I was about 250 feet up. And I remember them being playing with their DSs and, and seeing them argue and, and not paying attention to what I was doing and realizing, wait, focus back on what you're doing. Focus on the wire. Uh, so there are times that you can get distracted, but becoming complacent is very dangerous in our business. Um, you've really got to always stay in the moment, which is challenging, especially when you have ADD like me. Nick you, Nick, you mentioned earlier, I was struck by the fact that you talked about integrity. Um, in our view, integrity is one of the most important core values of a club manager. Can you expand on integrity and how it played an important role in your life? Yeah, I mean, I think being a man of your word. I mean, if I say that I'm going to do something, I do it. Again, it's not that I'm not human, and I think otherwise at times, just like that moment where I thought I'll just take the tether off. Um, it, it is, it's, a, it's a key to my success. People know they can trust me. They know if I give them my word that I'm going to keep my word. Um, it is, I think it, it's the key to everybody's life. If you can be, be a man of, or a woman of integrity, um, life's a lot easier. I can sleep at night without a problem. I can sleep till 10.30 a.m. before I'm going to walk 1,600 feet above the Grand Canyon. It is, um, it's important. Um, you know, I know friends that, that don't necessarily, they kind of dance on that line, and they don't sleep so well. I, I sleep great at night. I have an amazing life. I'm very blessed, and um, it's not like I stay up late at night thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or why did I do that, or why did I? Um, so, you know, I, again, I think integrity is, is, is important in anyone's life, and, and if you give your word, keeping your word. Hi. Uh, this is a little more of a technical question. How you get the wire like in Niagara Falls. Yes. One side. Yes. So how do we get the wire from one side to the other? We, um, it starts with a rope um, and a helicopter. And the helicopter will take a lightweight rope across, a very expensive lightweight rope. And then from there, it'll go through a series of machines called tensioners and pullers. We use uh, the IBEW, which is the uh, International Business of Electrical Workers Union, uh, to, to rig our cables when they're these big ones. And they specialize in rigging power lines between canyons. So they have all the equipment needed to do it. But it starts with the rope, and then eventually that rope pulls the cable across, and then we pull it to tension. Um, the Grand Canyon was pulled to about 78,000 pounds of tension. The cable weighed about, uh, about 22,000 pounds uh, in whole. It dropped down about 35 feet in the middle. When I retire, does the Walenda name continue? Amadeus, does it? No, that's my son that's here. Um, you know, I don't think it will from my children, but my cousins definitely have, have nieces. Uh, I have nieces and nephews that are performing already in an eighth generation capacity. Um, my kids, we really focused on um, kind of keeping them out of the spotlight. I'll tell you this, any entertainer will. Once you're in front of a live audience, you kind of get a bug and a passion for it, and you don't want to give it up. And we really focused on not on giving them the opportunity, all of my children are really good on the wire, but not putting them in front of an audience a lot so that they could make that decision when they got a little older. I'm pleased, blessed, happy with the decision of what I do, but I wanted them to have that decision, not necessarily have that bug. So at this point, none of my three show interest in carrying on, on the tradition. That, um, so we'll see, though. Uh, time will tell.
you have any problems getting life insurance? Do I have problems getting life insurance? Yes, I have problems paying the bills for life insurance. It's not cheap. We can take two more questions. Anybody else? All right, I guess not. We're good. Well, again, you know, I really appreciate you guys being here. I appreciate Beth for having me, inviting me to be here. Of course, I love my mom. And, um, and you know, I encourage you guys, live by those words. Uh, live with integrity. You know, I always choose to keep God number one in everything that I do and make him a priority. And live by those words, never give up, and you'll be able to accomplish anything, even if it's a battle with cancer, if it's a battle with raising teenagers, or if it's a battle walking a wire across the Grand Canyon. I truly believe anything is possible. So thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening. This has been Education Elevated on the FLCMA Podcast Network. Download other episodes on a myriad of different topics for anyone in your club or organization, regardless of their job title or description. We'll see you next time.